Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener. I've been using Scrivener since 2014, and I never looked back. It's an amazing tool for writers, and then it lets you build research in the same document that you're doing your work. You can put in images and PDFs. You can organize your work using the corkboard view. You can set goals. You can export it to multiple formats, including ebook and manuscript. There's really nothing Scrivener can't do in the writing universe, and I highly recommend it, which is why I'm so pleased that they're a sponsor. If you'd like to check them out, you can follow the link from our website or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code STORYDISCOVERY at checkout. If you're a writer and you haven't tried Scrivener, I highly recommend it. Give Scrivener a try. You won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2022. All rights reserved. On today's show, you'll hear The Evangelist, written by James Roderick Burns and narrated by Meredith Lyons. Settle in and enjoy. It must have been her day for characters. First the young man in the park, gazing at a ray of sunshine as though an angel was about to slide into view and counting out syllables on his fingers. Then a woman pulling her dachshund onto the bus. When she thought no one was looking, she bent and kissed the top of his shaggy head. And now, on her way home from work, this old man with the homemade sign attached to a harness under his coat. Its message blobbed out and spidery with damp, but startling all the same. Be sure your sins will find you out. Despite a long day on the tills, her hand itched to chart the contours of his face. She'd known an art career was a long shot, and she'd probably end up working two jobs just to keep it alive. But her mind and her fingers had different priorities. Despite the heat and a pressing need to sit on the sofa doing absolutely nothing at all, she could already sense the pencil's first hesitant movements, the scratching of lead across good paper. She'd begin with his eyes. He shuffled past, toward the booming chaos of Leith Street, which in all its bustling activity gave the lie to a decade of savage conservative cuts to every aspect of Scotland enacted in the name of austerity. Against this new commercial squalor, his face had a drawn, dignified quality. At its heart, the eyes gleamed, weary and hooded, but bright, alive deep down in the sockets. She smiled and scrambled up the bus fare between her fingers as she moved towards the stop. The sign man stepped into the crosswalk, maybe mumbling something to the pavement. At that moment, a builder's lorry roared around the corner, its driver's head down, reaching for who knows what as he careened onward. Everyone in the street scattered but the man, dazed, perhaps, or encumbered by his sign. 
No! She flung herself over, grabbing his arm, and nearly picked him off of his feet. They stumbled onto the pavement. Motherfucker! The driver rumbled away without stopping, or even looking back. Orange mesh barriers flew out like bursting bags of fruit in its wake. You all right? She was afraid to let go. He shook off her hand and leaned into the nearest wall, sliding down onto the sidewalk, still holding his sign. In the backwash of the lorry, its papery layers stirred uneasily. Eh, you are. Are you all right? I suppose so, he grunted, and his weight finally pulled him to the ground. The sign came to a rest against a pub window, and a patron looked out curiously through its reflection. She extended her hand. We ate a sec, lass. Another grunt, his feet shuffled till they could take the weight, then he came up slowly into a handshake. Ta, appreciate it. On his face was an odd mixture of anxiety and relief. I hate those drivers. They just don't give a shit. He could have killed you. One less old fart to contend with. She laughed. I'm Rose. Uh, Jack. Really? Like in Titanic? He looked at her blankly. But after a minute, she forgot about the movie and the sofa entirely. Listen, Jack, this might seem a bit weird, but you look like you could do with a drink. Want to get some coffee? He looked sheepish, rolling the sign pole between his palms. I'm paying. Come on. All right, then. He turned his sign face out, and they walked down to a less dusty part of town. Jack shuffled over to the far corner of the booth. She bought their drinks, tried to get him comfortable. There you go. The mug clinked on the saucer as she slid it across to him. He smiled, taking a hesitant sip. So, what's with his sign? Jack paused. What do you mean? I mean, I read it, but why do you carry it around? Well, it's important, isn't it? We're all sinners, you know. Don't you work? Yusta, in Yorkshire. Did me back in. Can't manage no more. Keeps me up half the night, it does. That and the sign. But we all have our crosses. You youngins probably don't know what I'm talking about. No, no, I do, she said, blowing on her coffee. You think I like being on my feet for nine hours straight, helping all the world's assholes to a new pair of shoes? Why not stop then? Do something you like. Rent. I have to pay it. Just like the hostel. Things lagged for a moment. The clatter of the cafe filling the silence. Then Jack brightened. Do drawings, do you? How'd you know that? Seen your fingers twitching. Bet you got a pad and pencil in your bag there. Me Uncle Fred used to do cartoons like there was no tomorrow. She goggled for a moment, reached into her bag. You're a very perceptive chap. Do you mind? He shook his head. After Shona passed, I sort of let myself go. Started drinking again. 
Lost the one job I could do. Then the damn Tories brought the bedroom tax and out I went. Ended up in one of them hostels on the links, you know. There's a bunch of them. Drunk most of the time, or so screwed up, they might as well be. Keep myself to myself. Carry the sign. Hope somebody sees it when they need it. Might help. Maybe. He paused and slurped the last of his coffee. Her hand was racing over the paper, the pencil's point sticking in here and there in its eagerness. From the deep-set, twinkling eyes, a whole face wound out in a spiral. Skin burnished like wind-worn tree bark. Cross-hatching cut across its depths, and now and again a quick stroke of the hard rubber tip brought out the points of light. She hardly looked up, beyond correcting her strokes with a quick appraising glance, and caught only half of what he was saying. After a few minutes of silence, she finished, smoothing out the edges of the paper. Oh, sorry. Quite a story, Jack. I'm finished myself, I think. Jack leaned over, eager to see. She was about to show him when something occurred to her. What's on the other side? Eh, of your sin. I get the sin part, but you know, might even think about that some more. But I'm intrigued about the other side. You're keeping that bit to yourself. All right, I'll show you. But you need to let me see too. On account of three, they both flipped. Jack stared, astonished, at the polish of her work in such a short time. But Rose burst out laughing. What? Can't I like me own picture then? She pointed at the sign. On the other side, under a curved forehead complete with horns, and over a spiky Mephistoleophian chin, was a bloodshot pair of eyes, a speech bubble that swerved down into a sharp crease. Fuck the Tories, it said. You've just listened to The Evangelist, written by James Roderick Burns. And we have Rod on the show today to talk with us about this piece and writing life in general. So welcome to the show, Rod. Thanks, J.W., Melissa. Much appreciated. Very glad to be here. We're so glad you're here. Yeah, right. And uh, also have my co-host, uh, Melissa Collins. Good morning, Melissa. Good morning. <laughs> I guess it depends on when everybody else is listening, but we always we always mess that up. <laughs> At least I do. Well, you know, it's fun. <laughs> they can know that it's morning here. It's a beautiful, sunshiny day right. here in Nashville. Right, and it's 3 o'clock in uh, Edinburgh. Where are you? I'm not sure exactly. I'm in Edinburgh, yes, and it's sort of overcast and gloomy here, but uh, the okay. possibility of sun later on. Pretty typical. <laughs> Great. So that's typical. Okay, well, that's, it's fun to know what environment we're in. Yes, exactly. we, had, we had snow about three days ago, so it's uh, a bit unpredictable at the minute. No. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. It seemed unusual to me. Wow. Yeah, the, the weather in the UK is mad at the minute, completely off the charts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we had a week of uh, kind of 60s temperature. It was almost summer. And then yeah. we had snow the week after, and now it's kind of gloomy and overcast. That sounds yeah. like Nashville. It does. It does, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Craziness. All right. Well, one of the things that we do first off to kick off the show, Rod, is just have you tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, well, you, you've caught me at a good time, I think. Because around a month ago, three weeks ago, I finished up, uh, I guess what you'd call a career in the UK civil service after 22 years. 
Um, and I'm trying now to uh, just write. That's all I'm doing. I'm, I'm 50 this year. So I thought if I don't try and do it now, I'll never do it. Uh, and yeah. oddly enough, I've been writing short stories for about 20, 25 years or so. And just, I don't know how other people write, but I tend to write them and send them out to magazines. And, you know, it's a long waiting game, really. But yeah, sure. I managed, managed to publish a couple, um, maybe a couple of year or so over that period. Nice. So I've got about 50 stories sort of out there. Um, wow. wow. Well, yeah, but when you look back, you think that's not that much. And then actually you think, no, 50 stories is quite a lot. So it is. It's well, a, lot a lot to have circulating for yeah, sure. Yeah, it felt like a, it felt like a milestone. And uh, yours was number 50. So that was very nice. It was, oh, yeah, it was 50 and 50. It, it happened about uh, a week or so after I, I don't know if I retired or just left my job or whatever it was that I did. Because um, yeah. I'm not up to retirement age yet, but I, it was one sure. of those. Um, we sort of plotted it, I guess, and planned it for a while, but it was a, if I don't do it now, I never will sort of yeah. moment. So this is a, it's, it's a very good time. Um, before that I was, uh, um, let's see, I've been to Nashville a few times. My wife's from, uh, okay. from Georgia and we met oh, in, in, grad, yeah, in graduate school, um, a long time ago, now 30 years. That was at the state university of New York, uh, at, uh, Stony Brook on Long Island. So. I was there yeah. for five years directly out of college, and we came back to the UK, and uh, I joined the civil service, and here we are, what, 22 years later, so. Wow, yeah, that's, that's terrific. Right. How yeah. cool is yeah. that? Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting mix of jobs, but latterly I worked for um, a, a relatively new organization called National Records of Scotland, and we oversee, or we did, um, oversee the uh, system of births, marriages, and deaths in Scotland, so. Adoptions and marriages and civil partnerships and all kinds of things, which are, wow. are in the news a lot at the minute in terms of, yeah. of tra transgender rights and uh, giving people uh, uh -huh. kind of more recognition of non-binary people and uh, civil partnerships and same-sex marriage and all sorts of interesting kind of live things for people's lives. So it was right. I, I was there for about ten years, the last ten years or so. Uh, so it's quite a big change, to be honest. Uh, and I as bet you, so. Yeah, as usual, when I when I got off the work or, or left work for a bit of time, I managed to get a chest infection and <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> I was ill for a couple ill for a couple of weeks. So I'm hoping that for it bodes better for the future than I'm feeling better now. So yeah, that's me, me in a nutshell. And all the way through, I write poetry as well, but uh, it's mainly short stories. And I've written a novel, which I'm trying to get an agent for at the minute. But um, it's all perspective, I guess, from here. Wow. Lots and lots of writing. Yeah, and you sent us a little information about your background, so we have specific questions to ask you related to some of your writing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. But but maybe we'll start off with your piece. So The Evangelist, this one caught our eye. So tell us about this piece. Like what, what inspired you to write it, and is there any real life in this? There is definitely some real life in that. I mean, I, I tend to find that with, uh, I don't know how you both write, but some either, either a particularly riveting image or a person or a feeling or, you know, the sense of an atmosphere or place yeah. will just arrest you. Uh, and in this case, it was the fact that um, where I used to work at National Records of Scotland, um, I don't know if you've been to Edinburgh, but the, the kind of main drag mm. of Princess nope. Street um, is, uh, if you see images of Edinburgh on, on, if you type in Edinburgh on Google, almost certainly you'll get a picture of the Scott Monument, which is this big sort of pinnacled uh, couple of hundred foot high monument to Sir Walter Scott that sits on Princess Street and there's this kind of anchor hotels at either end of the, uh, there's, there's a giant one called the Balmoral, uh, and another one called the Caledonian that kind of anchor each end of the but big kind of, uh, kind of Gothic looking 19th century brick, uh, paradise places and the Scott monument in the middle. And then hmm. opposite that, so those are all on one side of the road, opposite that 
Um, there's a whole bunch of shopping stuff and kind of uh, Georgian stuff. But mm -hmm. on one end is, is the building I used to work in, which is called the uh, New Register House. Um, and that's, we do all sorts of things in terms of family history and genealogy and looking after the registration yeah. service, all, all those sorts of things. But for some reason, um, don't ask me why, there's a bit of pavement outside, kind of maybe 50 foot square of sidewalk outside the building, which um, attracts every conceivable character and eccentric in the whole of Edinburgh. I think, <laughs> I think people make pilgrimages to Edinburgh just to come out. So, so we have a piper there who plays kind of Flower of Scotland and two or three other tunes. Badly with a with one bum note every third note. Oh, then, excellent! And he clears off. Then when when the Edinburgh Festival happens, the, um, there's a, a, a I don't even know what they're called, but there's a, a drumming troupe, an African drumming troupe, with these enormous five foot hand drums, and they come and and, and uh, do their thing for a while, and then there are mimes. There's all kinds of people coming and going, and the, the genesis of this story was twofold, really. One was that they there was a uh, just down the hill. Uh, around the corner from here was a very ugly old 1970s shopping centre called the St. James Centre. And they, mm -hmm. they'd had plans to renew this and uh, make a, a brand new shopping centre for years. So they started smashing it up. And this was cheek by jowl with our building. So they knocked down, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of rubble being carted away, dust everywhere, constant oh, wow. noise. We, we were in this old, uh, my, my building was from about 1850. We were sitting having meetings and you could feel the stones vibrating and the floor was thumping. Oh, yeah, all this right. Demolition work next door. So that's the background to the story, all the kind of chaos of it. Um, and one of the characters that tended to congregate around the front of the building was a guy who I just dubbed the evangelist in my head because he looked exactly like the character in the story. He had a homemade sign which he had on a long pole and it was kind of socketed into some sort of harness that he wore on his front under his jacket. So it looked essentially like the pole was coming out of his stomach. So he, would, <laughs> he would walk around totally silent, long, straggly beard, kind of very intense face with different religious messages on the sign, kind of the end of the world is nigh, be sure your yeah. sins will find you out. You know, that stuff is completely lies from him. And then with the yeah. rest stories, you see something interesting and you say, oh, I wonder what's going on there. Yeah. So I just decided to put him together with the fact of these thundering lorries and trucks coming by and the dust yeah. everywhere. And, see what happened. Um, the, the female character, I don't know where she came from. She just appeared. She needed to be there, I guess. And that's where it came from. So little dollops of life together with whatever your imagination throws up. Um, and I've also, at the time I'd been writing lots of, um, flash fiction pieces, of, uh, maybe around a thousand words. So mm -hmm. this is, this is one of those. Um, and, uh, I quite enjoy the challenge of trying to compact as much stuff as you can put into yeah. a short space or sort of maybe writing it a bit longer. We're boiling it down and condensing it, yeah, and making get, getting down to the bare bones of it and the essence of it. So that right, was the, right. the genesis of the story, essentially. Mm -hmm, I like terrific. that. Well, I really like your first line because it just sets up so much. You know, it must have been her day for characters, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think just about everybody can relate to that. It pulls you in right away. So yeah. strong work, strong work with that, and um, it's a fun, it's a fun piece for sure. Oh, I tell you what, sorry, the, the other thing is I did see the lady kiss the dachshund on, on its head. That's oh, that scene in the bus. That whatever. scene yeah. on the bus. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I just love the fact that she was slightly embarrassed to be giving affection to this little, that was a cute little dog. One of those yeah. small dachshunds, not the, um, the smooth ones, but the hairy ones, the ones that, yeah. Uh, yeah. Where, where they walk along with on their little stumpy legs and the hair on their bellies yeah. kind of sweeps along the pavement, one yeah. of those. And she had oh, it cradled okay. in her arm and she just kind of looked around there. 
give it a quick hiss when she got on the bus. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those great things about cities, isn't it? You see these eccentrics. Yeah. Of... And that makes me wonder, is she going to read this and think, oh, that's me? A very possibly, <laughs> yeah. The Daxon lady, yeah. Wouldn't yeah. that be neat? It would. It'd be marvellous. <laughs> I love it. That is funny. Crazy. Well, now, you've also got some poetry published, correct? I have, yes. Um, Japanese short-form stuff, um, principally. Japanese? Yeah, well, I would that I could write it in Japanese, but I guess the Japanese form in English. So, uh, okay. can haiku and tanka and a, and a bit of an obscure form was one of my books called a sudoka, um, which was, um, there used to be a form in kind of maybe 14th, 15th century Japan called the Mondo. Um, which was was a two-line verse form, sorry, a six-line verse form, but two stanzas, uh, and the first of three lines, uh, and they, they were, they're all syllabic. So the first three lines would be uh, uh, a five-syllable line and then two seven-syllable lines, and then the second part would just repeat. But the mondo was the, the poet would ask, you know, it was usually kind of Zen Buddhism, would ask um, you know, a philosophical question in the first stanza, and then the second stanza wow. would, would answer it. And it was a bit obscure at the time. And then it kind of gave birth to this other form called the Sudoka, which used the same uh, syllabic structure and the same two-part um, structure, but dropped the question and answer idea. And so mm. um, I've always liked haiku. Um, and then tanka is, is the five-line form with um, a, a five-line, sorry, five-syllable line, a seven-syllable line, and a five-syllable line. So essentially mm -hmm. a haiku with two additional seven-syllable lines at the end. And they allow you to a bit, uh, be a bit more subjective and there's not quite yeah. the same, you know, with haiku, people can get a bit, um, I don't want to say fundamentalist, but get a bit purist about haiku and, yeah. you know, there are all these kind of notions that it has to be completely scrupulously objective and just be about nature and you can't have any kind of subjective human commentary and anything that isn't pure <laughs> crystallized observation has to get chucked out. Whereas tanker is a bit longer and you can do more of interesting stuff and then sudoku which nobody but me seems to be using i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing <laughs> I, I was i was quite interested in trying to take these short forms and then build them up into sequences into something longer so i did a book of, of sudoku um which was three long sequences about um turn of the century coney island uh, which i've always found fascinating kind of that that uh, ludic quality of the carnival and the seaside and uh it was yeah. about three characters in about, um, one of them I think it was, was in 1899, one of them was in around 1901 and one was in 1905. So it's kind of a short time sequence, but three different sorts of um, carnival characters, if you like. And it was, yeah. each of them was spoken by that person, you know, narrated by that person using this Sudoku form. Um, mm -hmm. But once I got into it, it was very, very um, interesting to do because there's, there were no models. You know, if you, if you type in haiku mm -hmm. in English, you get about 5 billion responses. So, yeah. you know, when you're starting out learning how to do it, there's, there's loads of examples. And Tanka is the same way. There are lots of dedicated Tanka journals. But Sudoka, I mean, I, I came across it, I think, just a, as a reference in the encyclopedia to different Japanese forms and thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So I looked it up. And there's lots of description of it, but there's not really anybody writing in it in English. So it's yeah. like, oh, a kind of light bulb went on over my head. Uh, I thought I'm going to have to go at that and just. You found your place. Exactly. Yes. I haven't done any more since because it was absolutely exhausting. Kind of writing a, it was about hundred pages worth of all sequences. It's, wow. By the time yeah. I was done, but it was very rewarding. So it was, it was, and I think it says to me that, um, you know, haiku is very nice and discreet and sort of interesting, but I think I've always been interested in things that are a bit more human, a bit more subjective and also have yeah. some that 
narrative component to it. So sure. So you're putting your own spin on it. So I, I like that. I'm trying to, I guess, but it, it was a bit when people were, um, there, there were a couple of reviews of it and, and the reviewers were kind of scratching their heads about what the form was. Um, so I started yeah. when I was sending things out, I had to start putting the title of the, of the sequence and then in brackets, Sudoku, so people knew what it was. Yeah. So, so that tells yeah. you, <laughs> you never have to yeah. label a haiku. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what, what drove you to the sort of the Japanese style of well, poetry? I've always been interested in Japanese art. I like the, uh, the Yukio-e kind of floating, floating world portraits. Um, and, uh, I, I think that's just happenstance really. My parents, when I was growing up, had a, a set of kind of court ladies and wrestlers and things that those classic, um, uh, floating world prints just in our living room. And I was always fascinated with them. Yeah. Right. When I was tiny, well, I don't know what a floating world print is. Um, the floating world was the kind of eight, um, 18th century and early 19th century. I guess you'd call it the Japanese underworld. So, you know, the, uh, the famous picture of the wave with, um, uh, the, the lino cut of the wave with the sailors kind of going up the wave and then, uh, Mount Fuji in the background, that's the sort of classic, um, that style of art, but okay. the, the, the floating world stuff was about, um, all of the scene people in the underworld kind of sailors and criminals and kind of theater people and actors who were seen as ex exceptionally seedy at the time, I believe. Prostitutes wow. and you know, sort of cutthroats and all of these very, very dark kind of demi-monde, semi-world people. Um, and it was almost the you know the the, the sort of front of house stuff was very formal portraits of you know shrines and temples and pine trees were covered in snow and all of that. All of which I like a lot. But this uh, yeah. other stuff was like peeling back the human world and finding all of the gory, seedy, nasty nonsense behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some, something that appeals to me about writing about stuff that's difficult or kind of morally compromised or sort of silly yeah. and soggy, but doing it in a very elegant way. I like that. Yeah. I was already interested in the Japanese stuff. And then, um, when uh, my wife and I got back from, uh, from America, which is about so late 99, 2000. Um, I was, I was looking around for a job so that we, which I ended up getting the civil service job. But before that happened, um, we were living in my brother's house in a little town called Stockton on Tees, uh, which is where I'm from originally, um, which is famous for, for two things. The, uh, the guy that invented the friction match, John Walker was from Stockton on Tees. Oh, who knew? That's who so cool. In 1825 and, um, <laughs> no, 1827. In 1825, the world's first public railway was stopped into Darlington Railway, which was ran from there to another town nearby. So, um, Stockton hasn't produced a lot, I'm afraid, but a couple of good inventions. Hey, uh, um, but yeah. anyway, we were living there and there's nothing much happening. And, and this was in February, I think, of 2000. And I was uh, frankly bored waiting to see what would happen with the job stuff. Yeah. Look at, looking out the window of this little terraced house. And there was some uh, telegraph poles out of the back, uh, kind of slightly saggy telegraph mm -hmm. poles, and it started snowing. And the snow was falling down in an interesting way. So the snow was kind of falling through the telegraph wires. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting image. And then just uh, some descriptive lines popped into my head of what to try and capture that image. I wrote them down and I looked at it. I thought, oh, that looks like a familiar form. And then it occurred to me, oh, it's like a haiku. And nothing at all about haiku. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So I looked them up turned it into what I thought was a haiku. And then I just got the bug and I was driving up yeah. and down to, uh, kind of trying to find jobs and tootling about to, you know, doing what you do until you've got a job. Sure. Right. Meanwhile, I was writing all these and I wrote about 40 or 50 of them and started sending them to magazines. And that was, yeah. that was it. It was, it was I mean, it's, it was the, 
the oddest thing. It was just seeing an image, thinking it was interesting and thinking, what, what could I do with that? And then I was led off into this whole world of Japanese short form stuff. That's terrific. It reminds me of we were another interview that where we were talking about capturing moments and things that you see and really paying attention. And I think that can enhance your writing, you know, we, that fast paced world that I was talking about before where we don't pay attention to things enough. And I think we can become more inspired by that. And I wonder, does that have anything to do with you? You write a lot. You're very prolific. Things seem to come to you quickly. And you have, which we'll talk about. Oh, let me see the name of it. Is it? The Beastly. The Beastly Transparency. Oh, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> a novella and 20 stories. So that's, that's a lot. How do you write that much? I mean, well, frankly, because the novella and the 20 stories draws from 20 odd years worth of writing. So, you know, the 50 stories mm. I mentioned before, yeah. 20, 21 of them are essentially in that book that's coming out later in the summer. Okay. But, but the rest, and, and I, I, did, I didn't really pick them in a kind of programmatic, ah, oh, I must have this one from kind of that period and this one to represent that kind of writing. I just picked them uh, in three clumps, essentially. The first 10 or so are about... Um, kind of life in northeastern England. So the sort of stuff I was just talking about, being in yeah. Teesside and North Yorkshire and growing up and having all, all those sorts of experiences. The the second 10 are about my life in America, really, or experiences of life in America. Yeah. Um, mm. kind of in and around um, Long Island and New York, but also going down to Georgia where my wife is from and different places. And then the third one is a, it's, um, I don't really know whether it's historic, it's historical fiction or what it is, but. I got interested in a guy called Anthony Comstock, um, who was, uh, I think, in the 1840s, he was instrumental in helping draw the first federal anti-obscenity laws. So he was a kind of anti-vice campaigner. For about uh. 50, 50 or 60 years, he was uh, campaigning against, um, against kind of pornography and prostitution and gambling and pretty much any vice you could think of, he was a it. And uh, yeah. he founded this society called the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. So he was, uh, they weren't shy about what they were up to. Um, and yeah. he was, he was made, he was appointed, I think, a special inspector of the postal service by the, the postmaster general. So he had, <laughs> he had the power to intercept any mail going anywhere in America from anywhere to anywhere. And oh, wow. he, used to, he used to intercept all kinds of strange and interesting things. So kind of, there was a famous case of a woman who, uh, I think probably she just had, she was, she just had some, uh, mental illness issues. But she was convinced that she was uh, married, actually married, as in kind of the full deal, to an angel. And it wasn't like the, um, uh, getting the it wasn't like a kind of angel, kind of, um, you know, celestial light and robes and all the rest of it, kind of just providing spiritual enlightenment. She was having a relationship with an angel, you know, wow. I, I won't fill it in, but she wrote, lots of, <laughs> she wrote lots of books and pamphlets about this. And it, I think the pamphlet were called something like Celestial Love or it was, wow. it was it, and, and they were completely wacky off the, off the rails, but they were also about, um, <laughs> they were almost kind of, I don't know what to call them, sexual primers, if you like. Oh he, he, yeah. He pounced on this because this is <laughs> of course. Dis distribution of obscene literature through the mails. Um, and he also used to, he used to impound, um, uh, contraception and contraceptive devices. And wow. I mean, he was obsessive, absolutely obsessive. And he had a whole band of kind of, I don't know what you'd call them. They, they were, um, they were less pure than he was, but basically leg breakers. 
and he yeah. would he oh would go, go along and impound things and smash the doors of stationers that were essentially pornographers masquerading as stationers. He would do raids and kind of bust warehouses. It was kind of an Elliot Ness style thing. Wow, but with yeah. Porn instead of whiskey. And, <laughs> and yeah. it was just fascinating. And there's nothing yeah. in it that isn't absolutely true. I mean, obviously there's some poetic license, but all the adventure, I tried to compact as much of, uh, of his life uh, sort of 50-year campaigns into this novella as possible. I wow. Had fun so with that's it, yeah. the novella part. Okay. That's the novella okay. part, yeah. So Very that's this, interesting. Yeah, 10 British stories, 10 American stories, and then this novella at the end. So. Interesting. Well, I think you mentioned where it's being published, but tell us how that process went. Yeah. Well, it, it was an interesting process because the, there's a publisher here called uh, Eyewear Publishing, or at least mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's an imprint of a bigger publisher called Black Spring Press. Um, and they, they, they print in America as well as the UK. So uh, my book's going to be out, kind of hopefully on bookshelves near you as well as near me. Which nice. is obviously one up for sure. A yeah. big, it's a big thrill compared to uh, a poetry book that maybe sells three or 400 uh, copies and then disappears. And that's the thing, the, the hike, you know, the poetry world's quite a small, well, less so in America, but a relatively small world. And then yeah. the, the Japanese short form world is a tiny world within a small right, world so right. everybody yeah. almost knows everybody else and, <laughs> and, and you know if you send it out who it's going to get sent to for review it's a slightly odd world um, yeah so it'd be very nice to actually have a book out that doesn't depend on you know, that little tiny niche world yeah, um, well, yeah we'll, sure we'll, we'll see what happens but i just submitted it to uh i'd, I'd oddly enough i reviewed for um, a magazine in london called um, london grip i just did poetry reviews i've been doing that for years and a couple of the books of poetry um, uh, published by this company, uh, by uh, Iowa, excuse me, <clears throat> had come come my way and I'd reviewed them. And uh, so I was aware of them. I knew who they were. And I knew that, sure. that, that they um, had, uh, the company had a, uh, some various different imprints. I think they do some crime stuff. They do kind of literary things. They do mainstream fiction. The, the, the biggie that they, I mean, they've published quite a lot, I think. But they managed to, uh, um, last year maybe, or was it in 2020, uh, Boris Johnson's father, who seems to be quite as much of a character as he is, had uh, <laughs> apparently published a novel called The Virus in the 70s. And they, in a, um, they had a, he wanted to republish it. I guess it was timely in 2020. Oh. And they had an enormous auction for this thing. And I think Black Spring won the auction for that. So I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. But I'd submit yeah. it to this literary competition. They run a prize arena called the Beverly Prize for International uh, um, Literature or something, something like that. And mm -hmm. uh, I got long listed for that. And then it just, nice. sort of, it just sort of went from there. So yeah, it was, it was. Um, it, it all feels very kind of incremental, you know. It's I know some yeah. people kind of well, you know, write their first book when they're twenty three and just get published overnight. And but I think, I think my experience is much more typical of people who write. Don't you think that? You build and yeah. you yeah. gradually develop and you have little successes here and there and that builds yeah. up. And yeah, that's mm -hmm. much more typical, I think. I think so. It's been my case, definitely. Uh, so you're working on a novel. You're done with it. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, I'm done with that one. Well, it's a slightly long story, so I'll try to compact it a bit. But um, uh, once I finished college here, I went off to do a PhD at Stony Brook in English. Um, that's where I met my wife and uh, dragged her kicking and screaming back to the UK when we're done. <laughs> but about 10 years after that, um, it, there really isn't as much of a tradition here of MFA programs and creative mm -hmm. writing programs. 
I think the earliest one in the UK was at the University of East Anglia from in maybe the early eighties, something like that. So you know, I know the Iowa Lighting program has been going since the forties, um, and it's a much more, mm. much better entrenched and established um, kind of system. So uh, when I went to America, I, I wasn't even aware that you could do creative lighting programs. I soon found out when yeah. I got to study, but though, because there was a, a fantastic guy called Richard Elman um, with one L rather than two. Um, who was a, a, a novelist and a, and a being a journalist and anyway, he was teaching a, just a fiction writing workshop. I thought, huh, I'm going to take that. So I took about five or six lots of that. And, uh, so I was aware at that point that you could do such a thing as, you know, an NSA, but, um, I, I was in the middle of a PhD and then when we got back here, I was trying to find a job and, and it, it, it just, you know, five or 10 years go by. And then I heard about the, there was a program at Oxford that started this new program called the MST in creative writing. So into that i thought oh, i'm going to apply and i got on and that was uh, oh. that was when i was writing the, the sudoku sequences during that time yeah but i'd also started a novel when the idea for the novel was um, essentially it was about the, the process of um sort of building community i suppose is what it's about but it has three separate narrators who all interlink and they kind of hand on the baton of narration from one to the other and so it's, it's quite Ooh. a it's very much not a plot driven novel it's more about uh, interlinked characters and how they yeah. engage with one another and how you can build a community. And the essence of it is that it's three people who've really been damaged in their life um, and are, are trying to come to terms with various kinds of psychological and, and other issues um, and kind of meet one another gradually, uh, gradually and come together around a project to restore an old and um, dilapidated Victorian pier, uh, kind of bit by bit, and they get grants and do various things. So, Oh, that's the Coney Island reference, right? Again, yep, Coney Island, piers, <laughs> carnivals, all of that sort of stuff. It just yeah. fascinates me. So, but, and the, originally the, the novel, I've slightly changed the format now, but um, because of, uh, it, it, I don't think it was altogether palatable, the form that I had it in for um, kind of getting a literary agent. But originally mm -hmm. it was written as a thousand separate sections and just numbered one to a thousand, but each section is wow. exact, exactly a hundred words. Um, so it was, That's it was a neat. bang on a hundred thousand words at the minute I've, I've chopped it up. I've kept the structure the same and I haven't added or taken away anything. So it's still a hundred thousand words, but, um, I, I put it into kind of 48 kind of more ordinary chapters, if you see what I mean, rather than, yeah, the, sure. Mm -hmm. Cause it just, it, it felt like trying to get an agent was hard, hard enough work as it was without having right. to sell. Oh, well, I've got this experimental novel. You might be interested. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Right. That's something you can do later when you're, when you're published, you have your agent and exactly. you, yeah, you can, they, if, if they like it, they can sell it. Can't they? If, there if you they go. One, so, yeah. Right. But it, it felt like, um, the best way was to just kind of, uh, what's the word knock out on the obstacle. So anyway, that's yeah. doing the rounds at the minute. Um, I'm working with a literary coach. That was, that was his first thought was, yep, the writing's good. What's with this one to 1,000? <laughs> <laughs> Crushing your dreams. Yeah. It wasn't that he didn't get it. He got it right away. He was like, yeah. Yeah. what essentially the approach has got to be, you need to give them the least number of reasons to knock you off and put you on the reject. Yes. Right. Exactly. There was some scary statistics that he laid on me, which were all that, uh, I think most agents take on one or two new clients, um, uh, a year, but they're yeah. getting two and a half, 3000 novel submissions a month, every month, year wow. in, year out. So you, you look into be what the top one point, no top 5%, um, 0.5%. Yeah. yeah. You know, which, which is just crazy odds. So it, it is, it made yeah. sense not to present something that was a bit, um, 
hard to digest on the front end. Yes. That is one thing that I definitely learned. I've, I've been, I'm no longer querying, but I have been querying a, a novel. And I started my query with an experimental, fun, numbered list because it matched my character. I got no requests. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I need to just do what they tell you to do. I need to stop thinking that I'm going to be the one to change their mind about being eccentric. And I put my formula in. I started getting requests. And, you know, just the plain, they mean, they know what they want because it works. Like they know this is how I can tell there's a good novel in here. The formula is there and it works. So, <laughs> so you're exactly right. I've had the same experience. You have to be careful when you're first trying to catch someone's eye, you've got to be professional and give them what they expect. So yeah. I, th I think it's interesting that the, uh, so, so people's expectations about poetry and fiction are that, that poetry is difficult and dense and obscure and hard and nobody likes it and blah, blah, blah. Whereas fiction is easy and open and accessible and fun and all the other things. And the, the, in my experience, anyway, the experience of trying to be published in those two arenas is absolutely the other way around. So poetry yeah. is open, accessible, friendly, yeah. community-based <laughs> and Novels are stitched up, difficult, locked down, gate kept, closed in, yeah. impossible to break into. And I just, I've given up trying to understand how it works or why it works. I think you just have to, if you can get an agent, they'll figure it out for you, aren't they, son? You're right. Yeah. Uh, That's true. What yeah. a great summary. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Huh. Right time, right person. That's it. Yeah. Yes. That, and, and it is that, you, you, I don't think you can predict that really, can you? You can't, um, you know that, uh, but this says a short story. It, it will probably fit somewhere. Somebody will like it. If right. you like it and you believe in it and you've put yourself into it, it'll find a home eventually. But it might take right. ages. And it is just hitting the right editor, the right day, the right move. And you can't you can't yeah. predict that. So, yeah, my wife years ago said uh, very wisely, because I think when I was younger, I used to just write something and think, oh, of course, the world will be a path to my door and ask to see it. No, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> And, he, and then I would send things out, you know, the old convention where, especially in the kind of paper world, before submittable and email and the rest of it, yeah. you would print your story out and you would send it off with great hopes in the post. And usually yes. when we were here, I was sending things to American magazines and I had to ask my friends in America to send them money and they'd buy rolls of, of American stamps and oh, send them yeah. to us in the post so I could include the stamps. On the stamp oh, address envelope. The return. To send oh my it goodness, yeah. I, I would send it off thought about that. I'd hear nothing, I'd hear nothing. And then six months later, just a blank rejection would come back or something saying, no thanks. Yeah. And then I'd say, all right, well, now I'll send it out again. And it was just, it was a recipe for disaster, I think. The way yeah. that, and she said, you have to stop investing so much in each submission, do more and invest in each one less and just sort of cast the bread on the waters, as it were, and see what happens. And she was absolutely right. That, that was the right approach to take. Not to not care what happens, but to, to write it, send it out to a number of magazines and just see who likes it. Because you can't predict who's going to like what. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, as long as you're a straight dealer with everybody. I know that lots of magazines on the, their submittable description say simultaneous submissions are fine, but just let us know if somebody else takes it. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and I, quite often I've had things taken and then I've had to withdraw them saying, sorry, it's been accepted elsewhere. And editors will write back and say, well, well done you. And like, yeah, absolutely. it just yeah. feels, feels better these days than it used to. It did used to feel 20 years ago quite 
stuffy and kind of, yeah. I don't know, the gentleman's clubbish. And I don't yes. know. This, mm -hmm. It just, uh, life's too short for all that nonsense. Yeah, uh, yeah totally. Good yeah. point. Agents and editors have so much that they're taking in. And you may have a fantastic story. I've seen this again and again where agents are like, I just, I just have somebody on my list that's a lot like this. Like, I really like it. And you may get rejected for being great because you're like somebody else and they can't take yeah, you on I, for that I reason. I had something like that with the novel and the, the agent said, yeah, normally I would, I would say yes to this, but I just took something on last month that's very similar. Right. Don't you have friends? Just forward it to your friends. Yeah. Right. Agent <laughs> friends, right? <laughs> I've tried that a few times. They don't usually bite. So. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm sure. They have enough work to do. They're not going to be your advocate. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. That's Until absolutely. They, you are on their team. All right, Rod. Well, believe it or not, as usual, we have come up on time here. Um, I've kind of let us go a little long because I've just really enjoyed your conversation. And We've it's always fun to have an international accent. It's, uh, I know. <laughs> on this show. I'm probably going to have a bit of an accent later in the day. Right. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, our last question that we uh, ask our writers and poets is, what would be your best piece of writing advice for folks out there? And it could be anything. Hmm, I, I would say two things, really, as we'll be talking about. There's, there's no point doing something if, if you're not interested in it, if, if uh, you know, uh, as with the, the, the main character in this story, um, a, an interesting character or an eccentric character or a place or feeling or an atmosphere, if something's captured your imagination, then it's your job to turn around and make that as interesting as you can for other people. So if, yeah. if, mm -hmm. if you're just writing for the sake of doing it or writing for writing something either to a formula or trying too hard to to project something for a market, I think it will just never work. It has to be something you want to write for you, and how you have to be passionate about it. Otherwise, that won't come through. And then yeah. I think yoked to that is what we were just talking about, which is that that without wanting to kind of submit something to everywhere in the universe, try to submit to a few magazines that you think might like it, and just let mm. people see. If they do, they'll tell you. If they don't, they'll tell you, and then move on. So kind of, I think not quite play it as a numbers game, but play it as um, it's sort of roulette wheel, I guess. You, you know, you, you've, yeah. you've done this work. You think somebody might like it. Well, you just have to go out and find who it is and keep on going until you find that person, I think. Right. It's a part yeah, of the process. Absolutely. Yeah. Taking it in stride. I think it's something that that's huge as a writer who's facing rejection is hard on any platform, wherever you are. But in, when you're writing and you're, you're sending out your, you know, piece of you, and, and that gets rejected, it can be devastating. So you have to see it as a part of the process because you don't know where that rejection is coming from. So I think that's great advice. I would say also just as a coder, to when you get a personalized rejection, and I, my wife said, uh, oh, I think I said to her a while ago, I seem to be getting much better rejections these days. So it's, just, <laughs> yeah. it's a bit reversed. But if you get an actual personal reject where somebody says, yeah, I already appreciated this, but it doesn't really fit that issue or this theme, or yeah. I, even to have people have said, yeah, I think this is a good piece. It's not for us, but I think you might try magazine over there. Yeah. And then you send yeah. it on. Oh, that, that really, that's quite encouraging to know that it's, you're not just sort of howling into a void. You're actually right. connecting with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just not the right person at the right time. So, yeah. There's yeah. a slice of validation in that rejection. Absolute, so, absolutely. Yeah, keeps you going. <laughs> I, once got an, um, the, the, I once got a rejection for a haiku. So 17 syllables. And the editor, who shall remain unnamed, but was part of that, um, should we call, purist haiku community, 
wrote me a five single spaced full scat pages of rejection about this single poem. It was basically a whole philosophy. Oh my haiku goodness. And why I didn't match up to it. Oh so my goodness. That, that didn't feel all too validating. I didn't keep it, but I should have. I wonder what that comes from. That's very interesting because that's like taking time out to just tell you how horrible you are. Exactly. I mean, that, exactly. that doesn't seem necessary. <laughs> It was, it, I guess he was sort of maybe, that was his day for uh, elaborating his personal haiku philosophy, but anyway, so. I, I was the recipient. So. But you know what? It's good that it came to you because it looks like you can handle it well. You're taking, you're, it's a story for you to tell, and I love it. We can be there with you on that. The, uh, the air yeah, did turn great. slightly blue in our front room, but I got over it, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right, Rob. Well, thank you so much for, you know, submitting your story, and we're yeah. so happy to have it. Uh, on the magazine and here narrated but again thanks for coming on the show and thank you so much for you know participating in this process uh, yeah. thank you both for having me it's been delightful yes pleasure meeting you and good luck thank you and you <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you thank you very much for listening we hope you enjoyed the show if so please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublication. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.